This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Welcome. I am Kevin Sanson. I'm the research director of the Carsey Wolf's Carsey Wolf Center's Media Industries Project. Um, as many of you already know, the Carsey Wolf Center uh, programs this beautiful theater. They also oversee the internship program that many of the students here tonight will pursue uh, after they complete the course that normally meets in the Pollock on Friday evenings. Tonight, however, is a very special session of that course. It coincides with the keynote panel of a conference I've been hosting in collaboration with my colleague Michael Curtin called Precarious Creativity, Global Media, Local Labor. We've invited scholars from all over the world, Asia, Australia, Canada, Europe, and the United States, to join us for a series of discussions about the changing nature of film and television and digital media work in an equally diverse set of locations. Hyderabad, Lagos, Prague, New Orleans, Miami, the Middle East, and of course, Hollywood. We've discussed the growing pressures creative workers face in these cities and regions, as well as the opportunities made available to them by the increasingly global nature of film and television production. We've also touched upon issues of advocacy and resolution. What can we do to address some of these challenges that confront these workers? We spent the past day and a half engaged in lively conversation and generative debates and it all coalesces tonight with our keynote session that features advocates and artists from the visual effects community. We wanted to spotlight the visual effects industry as a key example of these larger issues and trends and the profound consequences they pose for creative companies and their workers. As you'll hear from the panelists, visual effects are now an integral component of contemporary film and television production, and yet the industry has been in turmoil over the past decade in large part due to the fiercely competitive global market for post-production services. Long hours, short deadlines, and low profit margins are just some of the problems that lurk behind the amazing artistry we see on screen. And so we envision this keynote session as an opportunity to reflect on that artistry as it also considers practical strategies for dealing with the very real challenges VFX workers confront. Before introducing our panel, I want to offer some thanks. First and foremost, we wouldn't have been able to have such a successful event without our generous sponsors. The Mellishop Global Studies Endowment and the Carsey Wolf Center's Media Industries Project. We especially want to thank Duncan and Suzanne Mellishop, Marcy Carsey, and Dick Wolf for their ongoing support of the university and of programs like this. We also want to extend our gratitude to Sherry Steinkellner, who unfortunately couldn't be here this evening, and Constance Penley, who made it possible for us to bring this course and conference together. The Pollock Theater's manager, Matt Ryan, along with his staff, also deserve huge thanks for helping us pull off this event without any technical glitches. Yeah, no, I didn't want to say knock on wood, but you just did. <laughs> um, finally, as this marks the final session to what I hope everyone everyone agrees has been a series of energizing and productive discussions. I want to thank our conference participants and guests for their generously thoughtful contributions throughout the past two days. And if we can, just a moment, um, clap our hands for those individuals.
I know Michael and I have been very, very excited about the, pa- with the way the past two days have progressed. Uh, now, it's my pleasure to introduce this evening's panel. I'll start with Mariana Acuna Acosta, who's there in the hat. Mariana is an experienced visual effects supervisor, digital trainer, and a veteran artist with more than 10 years of experience in the film industry. She has worked on such films and television series as Zodiac, Green Lantern, Surrogates, The Rum Diaries, my personal favorite, Piranha 3D, and Lost. Mariana moved from Mexico City to Los Angeles in 2009. She writes in her bio that she, quote, wanted to work in the best facilities alongside the most talented artists. Luckily for me, I have been able to do all that, but now the visual effects industries is in crisis and in need of people to take a stand for what they believe in. Next to Mariana is Daniel Lay. Daniel has worked in the visual effects industry at companies like Sony Pictures Imageworks, DreamWorks Animation, and Digital Domain. He specializes in modeling and simulation for digital hair and clothing for CG characters in films like Tron, Legacy, I Am Legend, Shrek Forever After, X-Men The Last Stand, and G.I. Joe Retaliation. He also writes about business and labor concerns in the widely read blog called VFX Soldier that if you don't read, you certainly should start. We are also, we are also lucky to have with us Steve Kaplan. Steve worked for years as a VFX artist on feature films, TV shows, and commercials. He then joined the Animation Guild in 2010 to help organize the animation and visual effects fields. He has been instrumental in reaching out to members working in non-union studios, as well as internally organizing members with the goal of education and awareness on important union matters. His work with the Guild points to one possible solution for the current plight of workers in the visual effects community. As one of the few labor groups in Hollywood that lacks union representation, VFX artists might benefit from the same protections the Guild has afforded colleagues in animation since the 1930s. We're very glad Steve is here to help speak, to speak more about those efforts. Last but not least, our panel tonight is moderated by Michael Curtin. Michael is the Melchamp Professor of Global Studies in the Department of Film and Media Studies. Along with Professor Jennifer Holt, he is a director of the Carsey Wolf Center's Media Industries Project as well. Please help me welcome our panel. We thought uh, tonight we're focusing on visual effects and what's going on in the visual effects industry, in part because uh, you might call it the canary in the coal mine in some sense, and, 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 and that is that the VFX industry in Los Angeles, in some people's estimation, is essentially dead after being one of the leaders worldwide. And that transformation has been exceptionally dramatic, and despite the fact that VFX plays such a big role in a lot of our entertainment and a lot of our information programming as well. We see it in feature films, we see it in television, we see it in advertising, uh, we see it in educational materials, we see it in news. Visual effects are pretty much everywhere. The question is, why is it that an industry that was thriving in Los Angeles for so long is now in such a difficult situation? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we also want to talk a little bit about the artistry of visual effects, and we've got three people who are going to help walk us through what some of that is. Um, Well, first of all, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Kevin, for inviting us. It has been great. Uh, I was in some of the conferences, and they've been super interesting. Uh, I started in this industry a long, long time ago, since college, actually, but I'm not going to go into that. I'll go into, like, right into it. 
Um, I wanted to do a master's degree and I had no money in Mexico City. I wanted to study in either NYU or someplace else. And I didn't have any money, so I started working in movies as a PA because there were a lot of American movies shooting in Mexico because uh, it was really cheap to shoot there. So I started working as a PA for all these American movies. They paid really well and it was actually really great. Um, and in one, one of these two movies, uh, one was Troy and the other one was uh, The Day After Tomorrow. I became really good friends with the visual effects crew, um, and I started to help them out setting up the cones and you know talking about crowd multiplication and just the green screens and everything that you know, the whole process of the visual effects and that's when it hit me that that's really what I wanted that's what I really wanted to do. So from then I moved to Spain and I tried to do it there and it was definitely not the best location to do, <laughs> to do visual effects. Uh, but I was doing some little short films and I won a grant with one of them and I then, with that money, I was able to go to LA to Noman School of Visual Effects, which is awesome school. Um, and there I studied visual effects supervising and compositing and everything that had to do with that. And they actually gave me a, a little job to do the, the comps for the fourth annual Visual Effects Society Awards, which George Lucas was going to be in there. And I was so excited that George Lucas was going to see my, my opening sequence or my comp of my, my opening sequence. Um, and from there, I moved to Mexico City, and I went back from LA in uh, in a Friday. And on Monday, I was working in one of the or the biggest studios, uh, film studios in Mexico City, who used to do a lot of overflow work for the hotel domain. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which is at the time I didn't quite understand the logistics of it all. Uh, but uh, we were doing shots from the Zodiac and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and all these other movies that I, I was thinking that they were granted to us because we were so good and so talented in Mexico. Now it's really because of the tax subsidies, but at the time, that's what I, <laughs> at the time, that's what I believed. Um, and from then on in, it's been, uh, it's been actually pretty great. I, I love this career. And, um, but unfortunately, in Mexico, the situation wasn't that great for visual effects. I actually... At this movie studio in Mexico City, the conditions were pretty, pretty crappy, to say the least. I once worked four months straight without a day off. I had to fake an injury to, you know, rest one day because I just my face was monitor color and I couldn't take it anymore. Being on the dark room with a, with air conditioning, doing a, a horror film, it was 450 shots and we were only four to five artists. Uh, so from then I decided it was enough and I put my own little studio and that was great for a while but then having to chase people to pay you wasn't that great <laughs> mm -hmm. so then I joined another movie studio um, and from then on I like I was using Nook and the 3D system and I was like loving compositing and then I actually saw the movie in the theaters and I was like okay I'm moving to LA I can't work in, in movies like this anymore and I moved to LA and I had a job right away and um, in the Swiss one in 2009, okay. um, it wasn't that long ago, and you know, it, it is it is unfortunate that when I moved to LA, I actually thought that yeah, you know it, it was a normal job that you would get a staff position and 401k and health benefits and and you were you, maybe you do overtime every once in a while, but I I thought everything was going to be like amazing, and I can't complain at all. I'm actually not complaining because it's been. A really great ride. But then I arrived in LA and I'm like, oh, 
wait, it's exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's not different. I mean, you get paid better for sure, but you know, it's the same thing. No for one, no four one k, no retirement, nothing. And it's crazy to think that I moved there in 2009, and five of the place, five of the places that I worked at have already gone under, <laughs> which is pretty insane. And I've been offered, I was offered, um, I've like Daniel moved a little bit away from the the the, the common industry that, uh, of working at the studio side of like uh, Sony or Detail Domain, Look Experience Effects, any other of these facilities because I didn't want to move. One of the, I had already moved to Spain, came back, I had already moved to New York, came back, I had already moved, I've moved to a lot of other places and I just, I just moved to LA and I was being offered jobs in Vancouver, in London, I was like, no, I don't want to move. And then I was offered a job in Albuquerque, which so much for people don't even remember Albuquerque, but you know, a lot of people moved with their families to Albuquerque and yeah. Sony Image Works set up a big shop in Albuquerque because of the tax incentives because in New of the Mexico. Tax exactly. How long did that last? Two years. Two years. Yeah. Two uh, years. There was a cap uh, mm -hmm. by the governor. A new governor came in, puts a cap on the subsidy program there. Thinks it's too expensive, and then immediately, Image Works says, "Well, we got to move to the next location." Yeah. Exactly. And they close that down. Uh, mm -hmm. It was even talk about it, it was also Albuquerque anymore. It was really the first bloodletting too. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, people. People moved there. The, the way Sony sold it was, look at the great picturesque backyard you'll have. Look at how cheap the homes are. These are people yeah. living in L.A. You, your kids will go to a better school. Oh, my God. It, it, and they, they wrapped it up in a pretty bow. So people packed moved. their cars and moved there thinking, I'm, I'm going to have the white picket fence. I'm going to have the two and a half kids. It's going to be great. And two years later, they were done. They were just done. Yeah. And then what was the other job I got offered? Uh, well, then it was first Albuquerque, and then Sonny said, well, Vancouver. And I was like, uh, no, I live five minutes away from Culver City. I don't want to move to Albuquerque or, or Vancouver. Mariana, you're working now doing what? I am now on the software side of things, uh, working for the company that does the software. You that, work for the foundry? Yeah, for right. the foundry. The, the, and they, the, they provide the software that's the core. These are the core tools that are used to by create artists the visual effects. to create the visual effects. Yes. Okay. Uh, right. Great. Yeah. All right, excellent. Cool. Daniel. Uh, I'm Daniel Way, and uh, I'm most famously known as the writer behind the blog VFX Soldier, and I'm a co-founder of the group called ADAPT, the Association of Digital Artists, Professionals, and Technicians. Uh, I started off, uh, I was an uh, alumnus of uh, UC San Diego. And, uh, I, okay, nobody wants to clap about that. <laughs> uh, I thought you guys would like us, but, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I went to UC San Diego, graduated in 2004. I studied there computing in the arts, and I also started getting interested in computer science. So I kind of did the art stuff, but also the uh, technical stuff also. And uh, like Mariana, she went to school at Noman School of Visual Effects. They actually had a bunch of DVDs, uh, I remember. I, per I begged my mom, can you purchase just a character set, which would train you how to do characters uh, in the visual effects industry. So while I was going to school on my weekends, I was actually training myself to get into the visual effects industry. And uh, as soon as I graduated, took a few months to find some work, but uh, started off working at a small company called No Good Television, with, uh, which was run by Gene Simmons. It was a music television network. Mm. And uh, Gene Simmons, uh, he'd be out there hanging out. It was great. My first job working in Beverly Hills free food, and uh, that was great. Uh, but then my, uh, uh, I was quickly made an offer at Sony Pictures Imageworks, which was the, one of the biggest visual effects companies uh, in the industry. And they said, would you like to be a technical assistant? I'm, yes, yes. But little did I know that you have to work 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. 
for about two years straight and uh, watching renders of uh, various artists. So, but eventually I uh, made my way through, got to know a lot of people, and got to work on a little film called I Am Legend, uh, which came out and became a very huge film, and that accelerated my uh, uh, my career uh, to move on to places like DreamWorks Animation, uh, where I worked on uh, Monsters vs. Aliens and. Uh, Shrek Forever After, which my mother calls the second worst Shrek she's ever watched. <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel about it. Um, and then I uh, moved on to digital domain. I specialized in hair and cloth for a lot of characters. So uh, I was kind of like the hair guru there. I worked with a team of uh, software engineers uh, working on proprietary tools, which you'll probably see some of the work that we did on Tron Legacy, G.I. Joe. Um, I probably had the uh, better end of the stick in the industry, I, I feel. Uh, but. A lot of people, I'm mean, hearing Mariana's story, and a lot of my friends had the short end of the stick, and I really felt compelled to write about the problems in the industry, which has uh, led to where I am here today. And who do you work for now? Uh, I've actually, unfortunately, left the industry. Uh, things have gotten so dire, I decided to leave. I wanted to take a more pronounced position in some of the work that I was doing, and I felt it was best to leave the industry. Uh, and I also felt that because of the dire conditions in the industry, I felt I had to leave. So I'm now working in the consulting industry. There's a business consulting firm uh, in Los Angeles that I'm working for now. So it's completely outside of the industry now that I'm working with. Steve. Jeez, uh, where did I get in the industry? I, my friend in high school uh, was a big, uh, had an Amiga, was a big Amiga guy. Um, and uh, in Amiga, he was, he was working on, uh, I think it was Vector Paint was the program name, and then he switched from Vector Paint to Lightwave back in like version two or three. And he says, Steve, you got to come check this out. You got to come check this out. So we, on the weekends, taught ourselves Lightwave. I mean, there was no training videos at the time. And this guy, this was in the mid 90s, I want to say. So we were, uh, there was no OpenGL, it was all wireframes. Uh, it was very simple uh, rigging, very simple keyframe animation that would take hours to render. And we just thought it was cool. We were reading a set of books, and uh, we modeled the characters and, and, and started to animate them. And I didn't think there was, th was going to be much of a career out of this. But Dennis, my friend, was the one that eventually got it, fell in with the likes of like Jeff Sheets and you know, almost got into Foundation, but they couldn't hire him, uh, Foundation Imaging in, in L.A. Uh, but Jeff put him in touch with um, some folks who were doing... Uh, it was uh, the Mr. Bill series. So they, were, they revived Mr. Bill. So my friend Dennis started doing Mr. Bill, and he said, you can do this. You can make a living on this. So I was like, okay. The time I was living in San Diego, I was, uh, I was, I was working uh, selling cell phones, I think. I'm giving this up. I'm going back to L.A. to do 3D. So uh, he, he landed a job with a company called the United Film Organization, mm -hmm. and we did uh, two to $3 million films that went straight to Sci-Fi Channel or maybe... Uh, uh, like late night television in Bulgaria. Um, this was some of the worst stuff you've ever seen. But we thought we were masters of the universe because it was, it was all light wave, it was all uh, spaceships and explosions and you know early, early visual effects. And uh, I never really worked on a lot of big stuff. I, never, I, w I was never lucky enough to work in some of the bigger studios. And uh, um, I ended up bouncing out um, after uh, we left UFO and then I got back into the industry um, from another friend who I'd worked with, and I started working on uh, features at that point. Uh, I, that's when I, I uh, picked up at uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. And uh, before Sorcerer's, I was doing a lot of commercial work just as an After Effects compositor. Mm -hmm. um, on, uh, and then right when Sorcerer's uh, was about to wrap up, um, a, f a friend of mine who I'd known from the industry for some time uh, was having some medical issues, and he thought they were pretty dire. 
um, uh, felt that he uh, had contracted cancer. He'd been in the industry, in the visual effects industry, close to 30 years, didn't have any sort of health uh, plan, um, and thought he was going to be a pretty big burden on his family. So he scared all of us by uh, threatening to commit suicide. Um, that pretty much kind of shocked me. It's like, oh, whoa. Luckily, he, first of all, luckily he didn't have cancer. Luckily he didn't commit suicide. But it put the kind of fear of God into me because it's like, why am I doing this? Why am I getting into an industry where I could end up like my friend? Um, so those kind of questions were stirring in my head when uh, Lee Stranahan wrote the open letter to James Cameron uh, the year that Avatar uh, was making its way into uh, the award season, and we all pretty much figured that Avatar was going to take it for visual effects. And Lee wrote this letter saying, hey, James, when you go up and give your acceptance speech, why don't you give a hat tip to the visual effects artists? Because nobody does. I mean, they work really hard, and they're really subjugated, and it'd be nice if you at least acknowledged them. So this got this, ma- you know, this major conversation started because nobody at that point, to my knowledge, had turned a spotlight on the industry in that regard. Uh, Lee's uh, Lee at the time was writing for the Huffington Post. The Huffington Post ran it. I, th- I think they told him they were going to run it on the front of their entertainment. It ended up going to the front of the website, mm-hmm. which then got picked up by most of the news outlets. So this letter went huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, I was working for uh, a small house in Santa Monica doing silly comps for a children's show called Imagination Movers. And I bought my first iPhone. And when I bought my first iPhone, I got into podcasts because I heard about this podcast. And I wanted a visual effects podcast, so I learned about FX Guide. And FX Guide did this podcast with Lee. So I learned more about the letter. And the very next podcast they did was this guy named Steve Hewlett who ran, uh, was the business rep for the Animation Guild, which was a local of the IA. And I knew the IA because having graduated from SC, don't hate me, (laughs) Um, I graduated with uh, with a a theater degree from SC and I knew of the IA because in order to get like beer money when I was in college I was this neck down just pushing box around type of guy between the IA and the Teamsters at the Wilton Theater so I I met the IA I knew the stage hands but I had no idea that there was an IA uh, local for animation and that that local wanted to represent visual effects so I turned to this group of people I was working with why isn't there a union for visual effects? And everyone's like, oh, this again. Just shut up with that. We don't want to talk about unions anymore. So I listened to Steve's podcast, and I was like, God, I, I had more conversations with friends. And then I started working at Sorcerers, had conversations with those friends, couldn't figure out why nobody wanted this. So I said to myself, well, if there's ever an opportunity that, I have, that, that presents itself to me where I can make that kind of difference, I will. And thank you very much, Universe. It dropped it in front of me. You know, Sorcerers was ending. I went to the website I normally go to, and there it was. Uh, Labor organizer, animation guild, organized visual effects. And I was like, well, I I abhor uh, any kind of hypocrite, so there's no way I'm going to get this position, so I'll try. Mariana brought it it up. 97 versions, right? And um, what's going on there, right? (laughs) I mean... Who in the world, who in their right mind would order 97? That's expensive in Mm. the studio system. If you were shooting principal photography and you asked for 97 shots, the clock's running. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the most unfortunate problems of the visual effects industry is that, uh, like Daniel was saying, there is so much that you have to know and so much artistry that goes behind Especially for, you know, people don't even realize that, you know, screens, detail, makeup, all these things that are invisible to the eye that people actually think that that was, you know, practical, that was shot and that's how things go. 
you have to know so much, and there's really so many man hours that you put into a shot. Unfortunately, even sometimes directors, producers, coordinators, people at the studios, people at the very top, don't really know what it entails, what it involves. Many of them will never even come in the shop. Never, exactly, they, they, they don't they even ne- know. And because it's a computer, they think that it's like, oh, yeah, change all of his face. Okay, computer, do it. Yeah. You click of a button, ah, okay, it's done. They right. don't really know what it takes. And one of the best examples I think we're always saying is like when you are on set and, you, you know, you're, uh, I've been there on set and I, in one of the movies that I worked as a PA, one of the, one of the, one of the focus pullers, it was a night shot and he was kind of tired and he actually didn't realize that, you know, the scene went out of focus mm-hmm. and the set got completely taken out. And then by the following days in dailies, they realized that the whole scene was out of focus. And that mistake was like a million dollar mistake. And of yeah. course, you know, it was like they had to rebuild the set and it was just, it was insanity and it was a very costly mistake, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that happens in visual effects, but they don't realize, you know, it's like if, if, I, if someone at a movie on set, if a director was like, mm, you know what, I don't like this set anymore. Yeah. Now let's do it all art deco. Everything's going to be orange. We're going to make it three stories higher and we're just going to move the whole set over here and we're just going to do another, you know, another week of night shots. Mm-hmm. Everybody would be like, yeah, you're crazy and that's right. not happening because that's going to cost this much money and it's not happening and you, this is what you And get. it's all unionized labor. And it's all unionized labor and you're so, around the clock. So if you're going to change the set, you're going to rebuild the set. You've got a whole bunch of people put to work and you're doing it hour by hour it's and it's all you. costing yeah. into the budget. Yep. What's fixed bidding? Well, I, I think to sort of make the analogy here, I mean, for example, UC Santa Barbara needed to build this theater, right? And mm-hmm. they probably went out and hired a contractor and they went to that contractor, said, how much is it going to cost to build this building here? <laughs> and they come out with a blueprint, and they all agree, is this the design, the textures, the wood, everything here is all agreed upon, then they build it. If anything gets changed at that, that time, there's a change order that comes in, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you want to make this building two stories instead. Well, that wasn't in the contract for the blueprint. We have to go back and change that. Visual effects industry is a bit different. Make me, make me a tiger. Okay, well, is there a blueprint for what kind yeah. of tiger you want? Okay, what, you know, what stripes does a tiger? How long is his hair, his teeth? How does nice. it look? Is the animation of how he moves and everything? Those are all moving and changing parts, and there's really no blueprint. Mm-hmm. The business model also is the fact that you have a studio saying, make me a tiger. Well, this person here, this company here, Digital Domain, says they can make it for $12 million. Rhythm & Hughes says they can make it for $10 million. Oh, wait, there's a company in the U.K., Double Negative. They can make that tiger for $12 million, but they will get a 25% rebate offered back to the producer. So I'm going to go there because I'm going to get a check back for doing the work there. Ultimately, it will be effectively cheaper. So that's, the, that's another problem is that you have a lot of these subsidies. So um, as you go through, you're just saying, make me a tiger. You get a fixed bid. It's almost like you're jumping in a taxi saying, take me down to the Santa Barbara airport. No, but yeah. along the way, you get to change directions where you want, oh, actually, you know what, instead of paying for $10 for his taxi ride, can we just go down this way? But you're not going to change the price at all. It's still going to be $10. Can we go down to the zoo? Can we go down to uh, the wharf there? And you end up in Vancouver and you pay $10. (laughs) Yeah. So I can go all around, all these multiple directions, and I get that one fixed price. And that's the reason why uh, the visual effects industry has suffered is because of these fixed bids. I think it's important also to remember that when you conceptualize a film, so when a story is pitched and brought to a studio and the studio says, oh my God, this is great. And the green lit has been turned on or the green light has been turned on and the movie is green lit. 
uh, at some point in time, somebody has to put a, a dollar amount on that. So there's a team of people who then scour this story and say, okay, we feel, uh, and one of those is going to be a, a visual effects supervisor on the production side. Based on this story and this script, it'll cost this much. And there's your fixed bit, because they have to go back to their shareholders. So really, the only people making films are six. There are six companies in the world today that are making films. And the only way they can make a film is if they, they're hedging it. To them, it's, 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 it's a risk. Is this film going to do good or is it not? So they need to uh, mitigate that risk against the best story possible and then make it for as cheap as possible. This is you know, business one-on-one. So why is there a fixed bid? Because you're using vendors. This is not a studio process like you guys uh, were previously saying, where if you're on the clock, there are union rules that say if you're going to go out and you're going to start shooting, you, there's a turnaround time. And if you're, uh, you know, once you're off the clock, you have to be gone for a certain amount of time to get proper rest. Uh, there have to be meal breaks. There have to be this. When you go into a vendor situation, so when a production gets that green light, gets a budget, gets that budget to the vendors, the vendors do what they want. Uh, because ultimately, yes, there's change orders in visual effects. Like if all of a sudden the tiger then becomes a lion or the tiger becomes a horse, okay, that's a massive change. That's, we understand that's going to cost. No, the producer will still say, well, that's still technically a tiger. It's got the hair. It's maybe a different tone. So I shouldn't have to pay for that. Right? So, <laughs> they'll fight it. Yeah. They'll fight they'll it. Fight but, it. But ultimately, the reason there's a fixed bid in place is that it, it, everything has to bubble back up. And the studio has to mitigate risk. And they have to say, okay, this film is going to cost us whatever box office mojo claims it's going to cost us, which really isn't in the cost, but I, that's a different subject. So right. let's say, for instance, uh, you know, uh, what was it, Tangled, or no, Frozen on the Disney side, because I can speak to that. They, they claimed that uh, uh, Frozen cost like, what, $200 million, right? Mm -hmm. There were fixed costs built into that. And to change that in the midst of progress, now you're, 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 you're kind of jumping the line, and now you don't know if you're going to... Because they can mitigate the risk on $200 million, But if all of a sudden they didn't want to set it in a snow environment, they wanted frozen in a tropical environment, and they found some story tool to do that, now you've all of a sudden changed the entire... Everything that you've built now has to be rebuilt, and that and there's a cost involved in that. How do they, how do, they do that on the live-action side? They vendor it out. They say, you're only going... So... Yes, it's a third of the cost, but that's a, that's a third right there, fixed. We're not going to change it. We're not going to add to it unless something seriously blows up, like Green Lantern, where mm -hmm. you know things went completely upside down and the process was completely ruined. And Warner Brothers said, we need to get this out. They found $10 million to put back into the film. But that's rare. So the reason there's a fixed bid goes back to because somebody is making this product to take to market and they're trying to hold the cost down. So what are the solutions? What are the ways that folks are organizing around this? I know that ADAPT has a particular position yeah. on this. So, you know, obviously this uh, rebate is a big problem. Uh, the, the subsidies are a huge problem, and it's causing a lot, a lot of price distortion in the industry. Because if I'm that shop here in Los Angeles, and I've now got to compete with a 60% subsidy, the only way I'm going to be able to get my work is if I cut it down 60% and try to even beat that bid. So I'm losing money, I'm gonna go out of business. That's the reason why a lot of companies went out of business here in California. So uh, how many here have, uh, let's say, Nike shoes on right now? Anybody have a Nike shoe on right now? Nike sweatshirt, All right, I Nike see it right sweatshirt. there. Okay, well, I wanna stick to shoes because I'm gonna make this analogy because right now, uh, shoes are made uh, in Nike in Vietnam, for example. And the government there does offer some huge subsidies for shoemakers to, do, to make shoes there. Uh, unfortunately, New Balance, which is based here in the United States, which creates, manufactures shoes here, 
They're being injured by those subsidies, similar to the visual effects industry. What did they do to prevent that injury? Well, they went to a court, a federal court in New York that allows for duties to be placed, what they call countervailing duties, anti-subsidy laws that essentially negate the effect of those government subsidies. So that $10 million worth of visual effects work I have here, that would probably effectively be $4 million in British Columbia because I get a $6 million rebate. I would have to take that $6 million and effectively pay it back to the U.S. government, essentially negating that effect. So it disciplines the system. Mm -hmm. So there's a process to do that, and it's never been done before for electronic media like ours. So that's the big thing right now is trying to do that. So we, uh, I flew out to Washington, D.C. about two years ago. I met with a law firm. We formed the organization ADAPT, and we're looking to essentially challenge these international subsidies uh, for visual effects in the Court of International Trade. Okay. All right. So that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Now, if, let's say you were successful. Sure. Let's say that countervailing du duties were applied. Mm. There was a, a tax that was placed on these uh, subsidized productions so that when those electronic transfers come back to the United States, there's sure. the duty put on them. What's to stop North Carolina from coming up with its own Great. subsidies? Great question. I get that question asked a lot. So we have a state subsidy race here, and our countervailing duty uh, effort is only affects international subsidies. So let's say North Carolina says, well, we want to get those visual effects workers here. We're going to offer that same 60% rebate. Well, our law doesn't apply there. But what have we seen with the state subsidies in Florida and New Mexico is that they're incredibly volatile. Now, there is a huge subsidy race for the film industry for shooting locations. Your shoots are usually one month or two months. So it's great to go a place like New Mexico, which has probably a, a film subsidy program that's probably going to last a year and maybe it'll get capped, right? Uh -huh. So you can do that shoot there. But for the visual effects industry, those projects are usually one-year, two-year projects. Mm -hmm. And you need to move a massive amount of people around. So you need the backing of a federal government in order to maintain the effectiveness of that subsidy because it will quickly get capped or removed. And there's still a lot of debates. If you know House of Cards, have you know, as you know, uh, they were lured into shooting in Maryland because of huge rebates there. But now they are threatening to move somewhere else because they're either putting a cap on the program or, the cap is, or there's somebody else offering more. So it's very difficult to maintain that race in the states. And there are a lot of states that are questioning whether or not they should continue. And so it's too volatile as a producer. I'm here to manage risk. It's too, much, too risky to do that you know, right now. But to, but to your point, that state race is happening. Yeah, I mean, it is yeah. happening. In Louisiana, Louisiana and Georgia right now are, yeah. is sick with production work because those states have pretty he uh, heavy and wealthy uh, subsidies that they're giving back to the producers. But I'll, I should add, there's not much visual effects work. I mean, there is some, but not much. As, not as substantial as the U.K., not as substantial as B.C., yep. not as substantial as New Zealand. And the reason why is because it's quite volatile. Mm -hmm. And if you move your production there, okay, yeah, you may get it one time, but then after that, you're going to have to move again. And yeah, you can't, and you can't scale. Again. Yeah, it's you very tough scale. to scale. So what about the flip side of the argument, though? If I were a government in a place like, uh, let's say, Mexico City, sure. in Mexico, yeah. and, and I, was, I was looking at the fact that I have very, very skilled young people uh, who want to get into the industry. I've got some really talented artists who otherwise have to move other places. I want to build my capacity. So what's wrong with them subsidizing 
work on the ground in other places from their perspective. Okay, I mean, I understand the, sure. the perspective of what's going on yeah. from from the, the the perspective of people who've been working in the industry in Hollywood since the '90s. But what about people who want to grow capacity in their country? This is this is the kind of I, uh, this is these are great these. I, well, I, I can I can only talk for from Mexico. I mean, from them, mm-hmm. from their perspective, it's actually great. I can tell you that half of my friends and half of uh, the people that came after we all moved. They're all in Vancouver, or we're all in LA. But there's so much people that so, so many people in Mexico City that they can keep up. You know, schools actually, you know, they lure, they lure you in with you're going to work in Hollywood films, so work for free. You get a lot of students that are coming working for free in the shops in Mexico City, and at the end, really, the the in some cases is the owners that get you know these rebates on, or they do some deals with the producers and yeah of course for them it's great and there's no stopping them why would them I mean you know free money I, I, yeah. I think it's great for the short term yeah. uh, for a lot of my international readers they say hey you know what I love these subsidies I get to live in the UK I get to live in New Zealand but what they find quickly is that oh somebody else is offering more money the producers even though they're getting a subsidy in New Zealand they'll say you either increase it or we're going to make your workers move to somewhere else so they're even affected by what I call the cycle of displacement mm-hmm. in the industry so even if you play this game yeah. let's say you move to British Columbia you move your family there you think it's great now they're actually losing a lot of work now in Vancouver to where Montreal Montreal is offering yeah. even on top Higher. of the 60% on labor non labor costs they will offer 25% mm-hmm. i think so. the be- i think the better ex- uh, example you would want is take a look at the uk subsidy yeah. and take a look at the uk industry because the uk yeah. has the bbc it has a very palpable and strong industry yet it's counting on the big 6 to bring work to London to swell those, yeah. and there's a, a number of visual effects houses in London that are very, very good. Mm-hmm. Now, if the if the countervailing duty effort is successful, and that uh, that subsidy, therefore, the practice of using that uh, or counting on those subsidies there, it goes away, and therefore using those houses goes away, that subsidy can turn into domestic product. That's true. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that. To some extent, those subsidies can stay in place as long as the BBC grows its own business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that I, would be effective, as opposed to mm-hmm. what Canada did, which was say, we're going to offer this subsidy so we can take work from here and bring it yeah. here. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the key here, right? We're not against subsidies for, let's say, if you have a farm industry in your country and you want to subsidize your own you know, farming industry, mm-hmm. it's fine. It's the causing of injuries to other industries uh, in other countries that are the issue. Mm-hmm. The WTO mandates that every country have these countervailing duties available to them. So the United States, they have countervailing duties levied against them by other countries. The UK has levied against our biodiesel industry. They've mm-hmm. uh, levied huge duties against us because we do subsidize mm-hmm. it here because it injures the industry there. And the ir- irony with these subsidies is if you're in the UK, I'm building my own industry here, mm-hmm. you're not. You're actually just trying to get US studios to do the work there who will probably leave the minute you get those sub- those subsidies are gone. Well, they will. Yeah, and they will leave. <laughs> they they, 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 they leave the minute you offer one penny less. So yeah. you're not really building an industry, a sustainable industry. Right. And so look at places where that have built their industry. India, for example, they are doing visual effects for their own films yep. in India, and they haven't done it without subsidies. They've been able to do it with just their, the content that they create there. In the, and in, in fact, it was Prana Studios that ended up buying uh, Rhythm and Hues. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I mean, and the Chinese industry is also getting yeah. digital really, domain. Yeah. Digital yeah. company yeah. I used to work yeah, for. Yeah. Yeah. But they also have their own, you yeah. know, their yeah. own content. All right, I'm sorry. I, 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 we've gone a little bit long, but you guys are just so fascinating. I could yeah. talk for hours. Um, 
Questions from the audience? Yes. Hi, thank you very much. The conversation was, Great. was wonderful. I have a question for Mariana, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your experience working in an industry that I think is traditionally assumed to be a very male-dominated industry. And as you know, this whole woman on the panel, I hate to put you on the spot, but could you speak a little bit about, um, and perhaps maybe some of the students would be interested in this as well, um, as a woman um, visual effects artist, what that experience has been like for you? Yeah, no, sure. And I was actually very interested in the panel before about um, gender and class because it is an absolutely male-dominated industry. It's actually funny because in Mexico we were mostly women, and I assumed, again, (laughs) I'm never assuming things again. When I moved to L.A., I thought that for sure there was going to be at least 50-50, if not even more. And I was, like, so excited to meet all these women that would probably have worked in all these movies. Oh, and in... This my first job on this uh, sh- on this um, the movie Surrogates. I was the only woman for quite a while, and I was pretty surprised by that. I was like, "Wow, okay." So I'm like with like 20 or however many men, and it, it's pretty surprising. But now I I mean there's there's a there's a few issues that come that I've now under, understand on all these years working in this absolutely male-dominated industry. And as I've been a digital trainer as well, I've done training in places like. You know, Pixar, Rainmaker, uh, MPC, places like this. At Pixar, I was giving training, and you know, 40 men, 40 men, and I was the only woman in the room. And it's like, wow. And this is in effects, and it like in compositing. In some places, in some shops, you'll find that there's a little bit more women, uh, but like 3D animators, maybe maybe a little bit more, but lighters and eff- lighting and effects, or probably cloth simulation, all that, probably. None. Yeah, it, it's not. It's a male-dominated industry, and let me give my perspective on it. Please tell me if I'm wrong. Okay, uh, you know, if I if I walked into let's say a clothing store and I noticed that there a lot of women are working there, am I going to say, well, why aren't there more men working there? Well, the reason why some of the products are geared towards women, whereas I think visual effects, the product that we create, transformers and robots fighting each other, they're not really geared no. towards women, right? No, You're I, in I'm, trouble. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to disagree. Okay. I'm going to disagree completely and because one of the... I've realized two things why it's so male-dominated. And one reason is it's our problem, the female perspective, the female gender. We really think that men can be more technical. We really do believe, I think, I mean, I read that until age four, we're exactly the same. And then from four up is, you know, when your parents, your grandma, the TV, the whoever starts saying, you know, no, do this because it's more for girls. No, do this because, you know, they start to put you in that road of like, okay, my little purse and I'm pink and I have to do all these things, right? And and they give you the little iron. They don't actually give you video games and they don't actually tell you you can program and that you can do all this, you know, Mm. because that's more for your brother. It's not really for you. You're supposed to do other things and you cannot grow up not me, uh, but you actually grow up. I actually love video games and programming and all those good stuff, but my mom was awesome about that. But I see it. Like, women do believe uh, the, that they are not as technical, that they're not as talented, that they can do, you know, these cloud simulation effects, that that's more geared towards men. And I've noticed that more and more. So I, and, and the reason why I know this for sure I'll tell you why. It's because I had this idea. I, all the tutorials that you see online, you probably guys, if you've seen any tutorials, they're all mostly done by men. 
whether it's whatever software, it doesn't matter. It's all men. So I was pretty tired of always seeing men. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a YouTube channel and it's going to be, you know, BFX chicks and I'm going to grab my painters and lighters <laughs> and I'm going to grab the whole, you know, the whole slew and it's going to be only women and I'm going to give them the footage. So I actually put the money together. I had the cameraman. I had everything, hair and makeup. And I already had the list in my head of who I, who I was going to approach these 15 women uh, that I was going to approach from the ages from 24 to 55 mm -hmm. that we're going to do this. And every month we're going to do on, you know, matte painting, compositing, lighting, etc. I had everything together. And I was even going to pay them so it wouldn't be for free. And I thought it's going to start with a two-minute interview, some lo cool location. That way, because you never see the faces on the tutorials. And then the guys, you know, because it's all male dominated, are going to see that they're cute. And then they're going to watch it no matter what. <laughs> and it's going to be great. <laughs> well, yeah, I got everything together. But little did I know that when I contacted the 15 women, which was, I should have started with that, not the other mm. way around. But I actually put everything together so that they saw that it was like I had a producer. I had, like, everything ready to go. How many women of the 15 women accepted to do the tutorials? None. What answers did I get? I'm going to look fat on camera. I'm going to look <laughs> ugly. Yeah? I'm going to look ugly. And I'd be like, okay, don't, well, let's not do the two-minute interview at the beginning on how you, because the two-minute interview is going to be, how do you get into the industry? And what's the tutorial about? You know, just short and sweet. And I'd be like, okay, I'm not going to put you in the, let's not do the two-minute interview. Let's just go straight into the tutorial. No, I'm not that technical. Oh, no, I would never know what, how to do a tutorial. No, I can't talk to a camera. But well, you're not going to be looking at the camera. It's a recording software on the computer. You do it anyway. None of them accepted. And they all gave me this, you know, awful, awful answers, not believing in their own, like women are underconfident and men for sure are overconfident. Well, we're all so foolish too, right? So, but uh, one observation to make in visual effects, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, and I personally noticed it, is that most of the producers, the people counting the money, are female, what I've noticed. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with some great producers in the industry. So there are actually uh, a, a good number of women working, but it's not concentrated in actual production. It's the producers who are actually dictating Many of them are, are female. So that's and, and I'm going to add one more thing. I'm going to add one more thing to, to that as well. When you, like, I, I started, I, all my life I like video games, visual effects, all that, and I got into it since I was like 17 or, or 18, right? So I was, I was all, always on that, um, on that path. But also, so you're in your 20s and you get into the industry because I've seen a lot of like really talented girls or w women, young women that are in between the ages of 21 to let's say 30, 32, right? Or may maybe 30. And they're really driven and they're willing to do whatever it takes and they also do what guys do and they move and they wanna you know, learn, et cetera, et cetera. But then what happens? Then at 30, you get, because you're women, and you get the baby crazy hormones, and then it's like, oh, now, you know, I want to get married, I want to have a family. Ah, and you start thinking about those things, and most probably, you'll get married and have a family, and then you realize that working in this industry as well, you have no maternity leave. You, no one was going to pay for your hospital. Or, of course, if you tell someone, like, I'm, I'm mostly in every job I've had, you work six to seven day weeks, 12 to 14 hour days. If you tell them that, oh, you're going to work part-time because you have a baby, <laughs> they're going to be like, okay, next, right? Well, there has been instances where people who are pregnant were fired. Oh, yeah. And I, Industrial Light and Magic was sued for that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know if it was settled or not, but 
uh, yeah, that was uh, one of the big stories of one of the biggest visual effects companies actually uh, fired uh, a, a, a woman who was uh, pregnant. Yeah. Actually, so so those, those, those are two things. And then by then, you know, probably mo most women then after their 30s. So one thing I think is the confidence part and the genderization of how what they make you believe you're capable of doing since a very young age and, you know, uh, yeah. all these things. Yeah. But then also it's like there's no... What are you going to do if you're a mom and you're working in this industry? There are absolutely no benefits right. whatsoever. Well, even if, even when, I, when I was pregnant, when I was pregnant, the shop that I was at when I was pregnant, um, they actually were very nice and they let me work 11-hour days instead of 12. And I was working six days a week instead of seven, right? So and, then, and did you deliver in the shop? <laughs> <laughs> Almost. They actually wanted to extend my contract. And I was like, oh, so should I just go pop the baby out and then <laughs> come back for dailies or what? So it, it, it's, it's an industry that doesn't... Come back for dailies. <laughs> <laughs> even, even for fathers, though, it's very tough. I mean, I, I know uh, many people who have children who are male and... They don't want to have to leave their family and move to another country. I get emails on Thanksgiving night from a father emailing me in New Zealand saying, you know, Daniel, here I am writing this email to you. I'm getting all these charges because he's trying to fit his whole life into two suitcases, and he's going over the limit, obviously. And he's saying, I have to leave my family on Thanksgiving night here in New Zealand so I could get a job in Vancouver. So, so even who, who needs to stay? So, yeah, so the know, woman. So it affects everybody. It, it affects know. everybody, but no, I mean, and, and, and I've seen. Getting kids in school. And, getting and kids in school. Moving around. And, and then I've seen, like, a lot of. Uh, and true story. One of my friends in Mexico City had a, had a baby, and she's taking the baby to the visual effects shop, and they don't let her. Like, it's a true story. The baby like, has a crib there. And she's like, well, you know, they're very nice because they let me bring the baby to work. I'm like, are you insane? Like, yeah. are you insane? And, you know, it's like, well, they let me breastfeed in the bathroom. Oh, how nice of them that they let you do That's... that. So a lot of these women as well, they might start into the industry at an age where you're not thinking about a family or getting married or anything else. But then you do it. Then you realize that the working conditions yeah. are not making it easier. And then you either change industries, decide to, you know, be a stay-at-home mom, maybe, or if you want to come back, they don't make it easier because they're not going to leave you, you know, let you do less hours or anything like that. So, yeah. I was wondering if you think that young people and graduates are um, a large part of this whole system of exploitation and the fact that because they don't know about it and they, this is a, a job that you obviously have to love to get into, that they think, oh, this is going to be great. So there's always sort of this new incoming source of Absolutely not. people to no. get their hooks into. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I mean, I was like, I was, I'll say this, I was the same way. I remember the first time I got called by Electronic Arts and like, do you want to work on GoldenEye? I'm like, yes. And I said, I'll even do it for free. Oh. And now here I am writing about, oh. please don't work for free, you know. Um, I think for this generation, we're, I think I came out of school and I was told the number one thing is you don't want a desk job, you don't want to be an engineer, you don't want to be, do what you love, yeah. right? And you're told to do what you love, but that comes at a cost sometimes. And sometimes there's this jock-like mentality in the industry where you're expected to like, oh, you're going home at 6? What, do you not love your job or something? What's wrong with you, right? That, don't laugh. That, that exists. It does happen. It there exists is. out there. They'll look at you funny for leaving it at, an, at yeah. what I consider as a union guy a decent time. So, so let's actually let's talk about that question of labor organizing because that that isn't something that happened in in the visual effects no and industry. it does it dovetails really nicely to what you said so is it something you should expect absolutely is it something you can change absolutely is it something that you're going to need to stand up and ask to change absolutely and is that scary you bet 
you, know? Dan, you, you really you really should bet on that. Uh, one of the one of the successes I've had as the organizer for the Animation Guild was to get a team of CG artists at Nickelodeon, which is a longtime union studio. Uh, that uh, those artists weren't unionized, so when we originally wrote the contract for Nickelodeon, they didn't have a CG team. And the way the contracts are written is that you define the unit that that contract affects. So when a new unit was added, it wasn't automatically put under the contract. So we had to go and tell those people, hey, you're working next to a unionized guy. They're getting holidays you're not getting. They're getting overtime you're not getting. Or they might, there's, the working conditions were that much different. But it took us five years in talking with these people to, and getting them to understand that there is a reason for unionizing. And I understand that unions, you know, they're kind of, it's an ugly word. A lot of people... When they instantly think about a union, they think about, oh, it's bullying, it's this bully tactics, or why do I need a union? As a visual effects artist in the, in the late 90s, that's exactly what I thought. You know, at the time, I was making more money than I thought I was going to. I thought I had everything set. Why did I need somebody to set my conditions and standards for me? Ultimately, it really is up to you because the industry today that we see, let's take away subsidies and bring work back to Los Angeles back like it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. We'll still be... Got, you know, artists will still be working 16, 20-hour days. They'll still be getting barely any sort of health plan. Uh, that can all change, but the way the law is written, it really, it, it's up to you. You, you know, the, Disney didn't go union without a fight. Warner Brothers didn't go union without a fight. And visual effects won't go union without a fight. And it's for you guys coming into the industry who just want, to, just want a job. I, I, why do I have to fight? I just got through four years. I just want to get my feet wet. Yeah. You know, I, I, I believe you and I feel you and I don't want you to pick up the sword until you understand why. And if that means you've got to get burned a couple times, you know, the Animation Guild stood behind a bunch, of, uh, uh, a bunch of artists who got burned at the mill in Santa Monica through an employer of record uh, uh, scam. These weren't our members, but we put them together with an attorney and they sued because of the way the scam worked is that the, the employer of record company was pulling their wages to pay uh, employer taxes that they should have been paying. And that, that lawsuit ended up being successful. So they, it, it fought a class action. And it was all artists who, three artists who were named in the lawsuit, helped 50 people get $2,500 plus whatever money that uh, was taken back. So again, it's all, it's, it, it is up to you. And I'd love to talk to you more about it because I can go on for a, a long time. Yeah. But you should know that the industry, when you get out there, no matter where you land, there's going to be pressure on you and you have an option. You're going to get screwed. Just let it only happen No, and, and you can think, I, I remember I used to think, well, at least I'm going to get my name in the credits. Oh, you know? goodness. Well, guess what? <laughs> oh, no, your, your name, because when you work in film and when you're unionized, when you're on set, your name has to go on the film. The reason why visual effects artists come after the people that pick up the trash, no offense to them, they do a great job. But the reason why we come all the way at the end is because there is no union. So guess what? Oh, 300 of you are not going to be on the credits because, you know, we run out of role and it's not like anybody cares or who, who are you going to turn to because your name is not in the credits. But so even if you were thinking about that, guess what? Your name won't be on the credits. <laughs> but to my earlier point, visual effects didn't used to be on the credits. And it was only because there was such an outcry that change was made. So... When you see, you know, uh, some of the big visual effects films and they list all the houses, my belief is that the only reason that list is there, short of extending total running time, which kind of helps, uh, is because the producers know if we don't, it's going to incite them that much more. 
And, and that's a small thing, right? Such a fight to get that small thing, just to get your name on the film. Yeah. Think about all the other bigger problems, you know? And sort of the reason I left the industry was I got into it because I said, I love this industry, but where was the reciprocity? It didn't love me back, yep. right? And you gotta ask that question, no matter what you do, people are gonna tell you, do what you love, you just make sure you ask yourself, is this industry loving me back? And is what I'm doing loving me back? And that's, that's reciprocity. That's the most important thing uh, going forward. I didn't know yeah. about that coming out of school. And, I, and I'm very against the for-profit schools as well, but, you know. So Which you went field, to, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought I won, but no, not that one. Yeah, that, no, no, one's not good. that one. No, no, no one's, one's good. good. No, no. There's so another we're, one. We're going to have to uh, draw this to a close, but I, I do want to say thank you to, to the three of you. And I also want to say... It's amazing. 540 people out there this year yeah. um, outside the Dolby Theater. Um, people are talking. Yeah. They're organizing. They're not only talking in Hollywood. They're talking around the around world. Around the world, yeah. And the so the way to really think about this is in terms of the fact that that wasn't happening five years ago. It wasn't. And so it can get better. You can. And people have to commit. Yeah. And so it... We don't want to leave on the sour note of stay away from the industry. Um, VFX no. is a wonderful place to work. I'm and, hearing and, papers. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, but, yeah, just leaving with the fact that it is possible. It's not change. change. We just need well, to change possible. it. Change, change, change relies on the people who, who need the change. But the industry is absolutely the best place to be because it, it, it's the bleeding edge. It is permeating everything that's out there. Most visual effects artists I know today who used to be visual effects artists and are doing something else have gone into games, have gone into commercials, have gone into media, have gone into apps. Vis the, the, the tech of visual effects isn't just entertainment. It's yeah. everything. Yeah, absolutely. YouTube. Okay, we're going to close on that note. I know I've run a little bit late. Matt's giving me that. that, that the evil uh, I look. <laughs> thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.